This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Leslie Hazelton on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, After the Prophet, the epic story of the Shia-Sunni split. You've probably read in the newspaper or seen on TV something about the so-called sectarian conflict in Iraq. And you may even know that it pits the Shia Muslims against the Sunni Muslims. I confess that I did not know a lot more about it than this. I was vaguely aware that there were two branches of Islam, but I didn't know the whole story. Now that I've read Leslie Hazelton's excellent and very writerly and readable book, I know a lot more about it. After the prophet died, it was left to members of his extended family to decide what Islam should be. And it was an open question because he had not been very specific on the matter. There were lots of open questions. There were also personalities involved, full-blooded people who had ambition and desire, who wanted things done their way, who allied with other people, who were hurt, who were wounded, who were right, who were wrong, who were healthy and who were sick. And all of these things came together after Muhammad died to shape Islam and in a very significant way, significant for us, insofar as the way that events transpired resulted in the division of Islam into two major groups, and those major groups are the ones that are fighting or were fighting in Iraq. This is really what we sometimes call the backstory, but it's not so much the backstory as it is the story. It kind of reminds me of the expression, I think it was Twain who said, the past isn't over, it's not even past, because this is a past that really lives with us, and it lives with the people of Iraq today. And Leslie does a wonderful job of explaining the origins of this particular division. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Thank you for having me. Good. Well, uh, let me tell our listeners that we have Leslie Hazelton on the air today, and we'll be talking about her terrific book, After the Prophet, the epic story of the Shia-Sunni split. I learned a tremendous amount from this book. Uh, Part of that has to do with my ignorance of Islamic history, but much of it, much more of it has to do with Leslie's ability to tell a story uh, very cleanly, yet very entertainingly, if I can make up a word. I don't think entertainingly is a word, but I just made it up. And uh, I really did find the book a a, a kind of a page turner, to be honest with you. You have a, Leslie has a a kind of a, a writer's ability that I think most, many people that write history don't have. I don't, I can tell you that for a fact. This is a book that you can pick up and actually read even when there are other people around, say, in an airport lobby. But the books I write, you cannot do that. You have to sit down and cloister yourself and probably drink a lot of coffee to keep you awake, but not this book. You can read this book, and, uh, and I think you'll really enjoy it, and you will learn a lot from it, as I did. So, Leslie, thank you very much for writing it. Let me ask you to uh, begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Oh, big question. Because, <laughs> big question because, you know, usually one's meant to have a sort of life story that's nice and sort of in a linear progression. And mine is sort of much more Byzantine, Byzantine, and sort of goes in and out all over the place. But I, I um born in England, obviously from my accent, educated in England, uh, spent 13 years in the Middle East, mainly in Jerusalem, then 13 years in New York, and now, to my astonishment, a lot more than 13 years in Seattle. <laughs> I um, trained originally as a psychologist, so my, my, my professional qualifications are as a psychologist, but I've worked as a, uh, I worked as a journalist, particularly Middle East journalism, for a long time. 
and then began this terrible habit of writing books. Yeah, it is a terrible habit. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the books uh, here to four before after the prophet, if you'd like to. You can say well, no. Since, yeah. yeah, no, that's fine. Since about 2000, I've been focusing on um, an area that really fascinates me. I should, I should tell you right now, I, 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 just, I, I have a blog called The Accidental Theologist, mm-hmm. accidentaltheologist.com, and I describe it as an agnostic eye on religion, politics, and existence. And that, just about the way religion and politics, this vast and volatile arena, the way they these two things sort of rub up against each other and jostle with each other just absolutely fascinates me. And, you know, looking on it uh, from the outside, as it were, as an agnostic seems to give me a particularly um, curious eye, let's put it like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. So would you call this your sort of main theme these days, that is the intersection of religion and politics? Yes. What happened was that uh, about 10 years ago, I... um, I wrote a book about Mary, uh, as in Virgin, which was subtitled A Flesh and Blood Biography. I wanted to know who she really was, not that sort of icon, you know, mm-hmm. blue silk and pearls and so on, and sort of, you know, very European looking in the niches of the convent school where I, you know, oh, yeah, I was educated in the convent. I was just telling you I'm Jewish, <laughs> an agnostic Jew, educated in the convent school, confused everything even further, talking about a central story in Islam in After yeah. the Prophet. Right. Um, well, that, we'd make so, you an honorary American just on that basis alone. <laughs> right. You're yeah. hyphenated. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote, I wrote the book about Mary. But I, my question there was, you know, I think every good book really starts with a question. And the question you, you, that the writer is really, really curious about and begins to obsess about and goes deeper and deeper trying to find the answer to. And what I wanted to know was who was she really? This uh, 13-year-old peasant girl in first century Palestine. Uh, that was my question, and that's what led me deep into that book. And then after that one, I sort of, um, it's almost as though I came at the same question from the other direction. I got obsessed with Jezebel. And I wanted to know who was she really? You know, so the, the, the one is the, the, the epitome of all virtue and the other the epitome of all evil. And in fact, of course, neither is quite you know, as simple as that. And it turned out that Jezebel was Equally fascinating in her own way, this um, uh, uh, Phoenician princess from the most, you know, sophisticated civilization in the world at the time, married off to the kings of backwards podunk kingdom called Israel up in the hills, which just happened to have control of the main trade route from the Red Sea to um, uh, Damascus, Greek, Turkey, and so on, and um, and therefore was very very important. And what happened when she moved? to Israel, mm-hmm. uh, very much, that, and that, of course, is very much a story of, of, of a cultural clash and resentment and so on. Uh, so those were the two uh, books that came before, after the prophet. So one was about a Christian subject, the other about a, a Jewish subject, since it's based on the stories in Kings, the clash between uh, Elijah and the prophet, uh, the prophet Elijah and Jezebel. Uh, And how come, of course, Jezebel got thrown to the dogs and eaten by the dogs by the walls of her palace and so on? Mm -hmm. Um, I find a fascinating image. (laughs) And uh, and then I, I, uh, without actually planning it, I did not plan to sort of do a tour of the world's great monotheisms or something, but then I found that the next book after the Prophet was focused on Islam, on Mm -hmm. early Islam. Well, let me say you're doing all of us a great service by... Um, really sort of translating these kind of complicated stories, they are complicated stories, in, in, into, a, into a frame in which we can really understand them. And I can understand them as somebody who knows virtually nothing about uh, the Middle East. Com- they're wonderfully complex stories, which is why they've lasted for so long. Yeah. They go, they, they, emotionally, they go very, very deep, the way we react to them and so on. Yeah. There's no way that you know, any story can last <laughs> unless, it, unless it does that. And this is why... Basically, all history is story. Yeah. It's funny because it, it, there's, there's a moment in your book which I really, really liked, and that is uh, w- one of the things that you point out is that even, even shortly after the prophet dies, and shortly, that could be anywhere from 10 to I don't know, 20, 30 years, and anything like that, the, the people on the ground didn't know what had happened. They, they were confused. 
And, and so they go about reconstructing a story, and it turns out very, two very different stories about the prophet's relationship with Ali. Um, and this makes all the difference in the world uh, because they don't remember what happened exactly, and we well, can't really know what happened exactly. So They do and they don't. It's, it's um, the method. Okay, what happened – First, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how I how I got into. Uh, yeah, let me let me how, let me take a step how back. I got I... interested in this, and then and then we'll go into the um, this magnificent history that I discovered, written in the late ninth, early tenth century, okay. by Al Tabari, this famed and revered early Islamic historian. Okay, you tell um, us how you came to write the method. book. Hmm? Yes, go ahead. Okay, so what happened was. Uh, after the prophet really began with a question posed by a friend of mine who was trying to persuade me to write a book about Muhammad, a biography of Muhammad. And I said, you know, with all due respect and so on and so on, uh, I am not qualified to write a book about Muhammad. And he was trying to persuade me that I was and so on. And I began to read biographies of Muhammad, which are it's kind of difficult because most of them are, are, are hampered either by too much reverence and too much piety or by a kind of almost a fear on the part of non-Muslim writers of sort of overstepping a boundary or something like this. So they're, they're very dry and you never really get a sense of the man himself, which I think is a shame because it's an absolutely one. I mean, it's an amazing life that he lived. Uh, and he was an, you know, an amazing person, quite obviously. But, um, but you know, we got together again and we were talking and I was talking about Muhammad and so on. And he said, you know, Here's the question he said, and this was shortly after a particularly horrendous series of suicide bombings in Karbala in Iraq, uh, which is, by the way, the cradle of Shia Islam. Uh, the cradle, you might say, of the split between Shia Islam and Sunni Islam. And uh, his question was as follows. He said, how come Muhammad, as you say, the prophet of unity, one God, one people, could leave behind him, at the, from the, at the moment he died, could leave behind him this terrible, blood-soaked, seemingly unending legacy of division between Shia and Sunni. And that was the question that hooked me, that began to obsess me. And I, I began to read deeper and deeper, looking for an answer to this question. I'm still not finding it because the trouble is, you see, that we suffer in the West from what I call the nutshell syndrome. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, you're very familiar with that, right? Yeah. Can you just tell me in a nutshell yeah. what it was all about, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was a, it was, it was a, 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 a dispute over the succession to Muhammad. Yeah. That leaves you very much the wiser, doesn't it? Oh, it was a dispute between his family and his community. That doesn't leave you any the wiser either. So the nutshell version tends to come in um, maybe maximum a paragraph usually a couple of sentences and something, sometimes just something really dismissive, like the, you know, some dispute over succession to Muhammad. And um, none of this was, to put it mildly, at all satisfying. So I began to read deeper and deeper, and that's when I went back to the source and discovered that this magnificent early Islamic history by Al-Tabari had been translated into English, God bless him, in a series of 39 volumes, wow. which took all of the 1990s to do, and mm -hmm. um, you know, closely annotated and so and footnoted. And I began to read Al-Tabari, and it was amazing. It was like this, it just leapt to life, this whole story. It was so vivid and so compelling and so detailed um, that, you know, I, it was written, it's written in a very Middle Eastern style. It's written in a style that I know most Westerners would not be able to stand, almost what you would call a Byzantine style. It goes round and about. In fact, it's a very postmodern kind of style because what Al-Tabari did was he traveled all throughout the Muslim empire at the time, talking to people and basically taking oral histories. The first time most of it was being written down. And by then, of course, it was, several generations later, say three, four, five generations later. So he was very, very careful to record what is called in Arabic, the, in Islam, the isnad, that is the chain of communication. That is, A will say, I heard this from B, who heard this from C, who heard this from D, who was there when it happened. 
And then E will say, well, I heard this from G, who heard it from H, who heard it from D, who was there when it happened, right? And then you have both of them go back to D and so on. So you could trace these, the way these stories come down to be told in a mainly non-literate society, which is not to say unsophisticated. We tend to confuse literacy with sophistication. And in fact, the 7th and 8th century uh, 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 Islam was immensely sophisticated because it was based on... I mean, for instance, today... We um, just, you know, we're somewhat puzzled that there are so many Muslims who can, who can recite the whole of the Quran by memory, by heart. This was common in the 7th and 8th centuries. It was common before literacy. People's minds were the repositories, not actual books. It's almost as though uh, with literacy, we forgot how to remember. We forgot how to, how to hold large amounts of information in our head because we can always go and look it up. In those days, it was all in your head, and you remembered. I mean, I have listened, and still in, in, in non-literate, contemporary non-literate societies, like uh, Bedouin societies, or what's left of them now, but I remember like you know, 40 years ago in the Sinai, listening to Bedouin elders recite uh, traditional Bedouin poems by heart, ones that lasted for hours on end, mm-hmm. hours, and entirely by memory. Mm-hmm. It was just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's ended now because their children weren't interested in learning them and so on, and their children became literate and you know, went into the towns and so on. And there's a whole society coming to an end right there in the 20th and 21st century. But I'm getting way off the point here. Back to Al-Tabari. So what Al-Tabari does is he'll tell it from one person's point of view first, and then from another one, and then from another one. So you may have like 12 or 15 different versions of the same event, and each one is told, you can hear that person speaking, the particular personality telling it. Some of them remember direct speech, which makes it even more vivid. Some of them have, um, give you, you know, such a sense of the language and the thought of the time. You know, you can read uh, uh, oaths like, you know, may your mother be bereaved of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, I get, just saying that, the little chills go down my spine mm-hmm. when I think of that. I mean, what a terrible curse that is. And so vivid. Um, and others are sort of more, tell more, you know, the general story from more of a distance and so on. It depends, of course, on how good they are at telling stories. But the thing is that all these stories agree in the main details. Some have more detail than others. Some One person might remember the scene of a battle where a young man comes out to do a single combat, and he'll remember the glint of, of the boy's earring in the sunlight. Or he'll remember that one of his sandal straps was broken, and then he'll add, the left one, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you see what I mean about mm-hmm. the kind of detail? That's idiot was just, it was such a discovery, and I realized what I had to do was to tell the story in a way that Western readers could appreciate, could appreciate the depth of it and the power of it. Because, as I say, any story that's lasted for so long, for 1,400 years, we know it has to have the most incredible depth and power, the power to resonate, to hold the imagination, to, mm-hmm. to, to, for, its, for its main scenes to be so very, very symbolic as the ones in this story are. Mm-hmm. So then uh, let's actually talk about the story. Where should we start the story of the uh, Sunni-Shia split? Ah, oh, well, where we... I don't know. I'll tell you where I started. Yeah, tell, well, where do you I, start I, it? Yeah, that's fine. I, I started with the death of Muhammad. Um, at age 63, probably a meningitis, though it's not quite clear, but it was an illness that lasted two or three weeks, and he was you know, fading sort of... You know, until then, he'd been in very, very good health, and it's as though... It's as though it had not occurred to anybody that the prophet was going to die. You know, he, he had achieved so much. He really had united the, the, you know, the fractured tribes of Arabia. And Arabia was poised at that point, just perfectly poised to surge out northward because what happened was this was at exactly the time that the Byzantine and the Persian empires had exhausted each other from decades of fighting and the, the, the dividing line between them being more or less where Syria and Iraq are today, especially Iraq. Um, so what you were finding was uh, these two rapidly fading empires, and thus a vacuum of power, just at the time that the 
that Arabia was becoming united and beginning to experience this uh, the, the sense of national identity as Arabs and as Muslims. Um, so almost poised, ready to surge out north, and not to any kind of foreign territory. It has to be said here that, you know, there's a strange image still in the West that 7th century Mecca and Medina were somehow, you know, isolated, backward, primitive places. You know, you just use the word tribe and everybody thinks, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's a synonym for primitive. In fact, you know, the, 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 the tribal organization is incredibly sophisticated. And uh, Mecca in particular uh, made its fortune by trade. It was a merchant city working on the camel caravans. Um, now, perhaps you have to have lived in the desert as I did for a year to really appreciate camels, you know, without them becoming, you know, just, oh, camels, ha-ha. They are the most incredible mm-hmm. animals. But um, there we go, you know, from Mecca, month-long journeys down to Yemen and up to Damascus and then back again. And, of course, you know, when they got to Damascus, they did not do like the modern equivalent of a touch-and-go at Damascus airport, right? They settled in. This is how you did business then. You traveled for a month. You settled in for at least a month or so. You gave hospitality. You received hospitality. You talked. You learned. And you found out what was happening in the world. I mean, if you look today at the Wall Street Journal, for instance, or the Financial Times, those two newspapers have some of the best foreign coverage in the world, if not the best. And the answer is quite simple. You know, if you ask why, it's quite simple. You cannot trade successfully without knowing what is happening in the world. Mm-hmm. It is essential politically, culturally, socially, and economically. There are no dividing lines between these things. Mm-hmm. And um, in the same way, the merchants of Mecca were incredibly successful because they were connected, because they did know what was happening and so on. Now I've forgotten where I came from. <laughs> well, you came from where we were going to start the story, and Muhammad <laughs> dies, and then what happens? Yeah. Oh, that's it, Mr. Vacuum. It's, everything is poised, right? Uh, and it's as though, as I say, as though nobody realized that he was actually mortal, that he really was going to die. And there is a most strange scene around his deathbed where it's as though everybody wants him to appoint, clearly appoint a successor. I have to say clearly because Sunnis say that he did and Shia say that he did, but they say that it was different people, of course. Um, But unequivocal, sorry, let's put it like this, an unequivocal announcement of who would lead the Ummah, the community of Islam after his death, was, so far as I can see, not quite made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's as though everybody gathered there around his deathbed wanted him and yet didn't want him to say it unequivocally. Uh, it's as though they were afraid of what he would say. And were, it, what happened was that there were two main contenders. One was Ali. And Ali... Um, was both his cousin and his son-in-law, married to his favorite daughter, Fatima. And Ali was probably the single uh, uh, man closest to Muhammad uh, and was also the first man to accept Islam. Uh, But on the other hand, the Sunnis say, and why do I focus on Ali here? Because Shia, when we talk about Shia, Shia is actually short for Shi'at Ali, the party of Ali, or the followers of Ali. But there was another man involved, too, Abu Bakr, who was one of um, Muhammad's earliest followers. And as well, Sunni will tell you, he was the first man to convert to Islam. And uh, he was Muhammad's father-in-law by then, because Muhammad, uh, Muhammad's youngest wife was Abu Bakr's daughter, mm-hmm. Aisha. And um, they, too, were very, very close. And Abu Bakr was also a man held in very, very high repute, as was Ali. So the Sunnis say that actually the man he really indicated should be a successor was indeed Abu Bakr. So uh, there is the most strange scene right after his death where a shura has been called, a council of all the, the, the tribal elders and leaders to decide what to do now. And everybody goes to the council. Um, well, some go to the council, and then the council is kind of gate crashed. 
uh, <laughs> by one faction, and meanwhile Ali is sitting with the body of Muhammad, so it doesn't go. Um, it, it is the whole scene is is so strange, and yet it's the strangeness, you know, the, just the image of 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 the body of Muhammad just there in this room with just. Ali and a few others of his closest family and nobody else around while everybody else is off trying to figure out, okay, who's going to take power now and so on. It's very human and it's very real. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can almost, I mean, you can sense it happening. It's people um, confused, trying to figure out what to do, getting all the more confused and so on. Um, until eventually what happens is by a, a kind of, you know, you could say a kind of political slate, a sleight of hand, uh, Abu Bakr was, um, the consensus landed on Abu Bakr, except it, of course, was not a full consensus. So, um, and all this before Muhammad is even buried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very strange. And the strangest thing, too, is that when he was buried, it was Ali and Ali's closest relatives who buried him, and nobody else was there. Mm-hmm. It's almost as though, in fact, Aisha, you know, relates hearing them, hearing the pickaxes in the middle of the night. He was buried in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. So no great state funeral, as it were, but just you know, very gently and quietly slipped into the ground mm-hmm. before somebody could claim to make a big thing of a, of, you know, a, a big show out of his funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, a very, very strange and very haunting sequence of events going on there. Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask you a question that uh, I was a little bit, I was just a little bit confused by this, and perhaps because I bring a Christian perspective to this, or perhaps Judeo-Christian in perspective, and that is, uh, what were these people succeeding to, if you see what I mean? In other words, you know, I understand the succession of kings and presidents are elected and so on and so forth, but the prophet was, he wasn't the first prophet, but he was the first one in a long time, and I didn't, well, no, you know... The, uh, the, by then they regarded him as the last prophet. The last he prophet, okay, prophet. so he's the first, yeah. well, he's the last prophet, but mm-hmm. prophets generally didn't have successors. I'm trying to look back into the Old Testament and think, certainly no one wanted uh, to follow Jesus because he got crucified, uh, at least as a leader of whatever Jesus was the leader well, of. But again, my question mm-hmm. is, what, what was the thing to which they were aspiring? Okay. In the 7th century, there was no distinction between politics and religion especially in the Middle East. Politics and religion, and still in many parts of the Middle East, (laughs) are are inextricably bound up with each other. Religion does not exist in and of itself in a separate realm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when we say that uh, uh, Muhammad was the leader of the religion of Islam, it wasn't actually thought of as a religion. It was more thought of more as deen, like deen Ibrahim, the, 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 the path or the way of Abraham. It was um, a, not a religion per se, but a way of being, a way of being in the world, which included social and political relations and so on. By the time he died, uh, Muhammad was the head of a huge community, uh, had united most of the tribes of Arabia, uh, had given a new sense of identity to Arabic speakers and so on, and a new sense of power, of the power that they could achieve united instead of squabbling among themselves, as it were. And of course, this, this, this immense body of revelations called the Quran, mm-hmm. which was you know, a, a kind of a guide, which, which everybody could accept because, because it was in such beautiful Arabic. It was a, you, know, you had had the, the, the Hebrew Bible revealed as it were in Hebrew, you had the Christian Bible revealed as it were in Aramaic and in Greek, but here was as far as they were concerned, the word of God in their own language, in Arabic and in the most beautiful Arabic anyone had ever heard. So the, the, this immense sense of identity and, of, and, and, and the, 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 the sense of empowerment that comes with that identity was, of course, was also political. So, you know, we were talking about, we were talking about a, a, by the time he died, uh, a community that had great political power, great economic power, because the, 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 um, not only from the trading and so on, and from pilgrimage to Mecca, but also because uh, part of swearing allegiance to, to uh, Islam and of, uh, of 
partnership with Islam for each tribe was, of course, you know, a payment of taxes, mm-hmm. so or some form of taxes. So it was quite wealthy, too. I mean, we're talking about a lot of power involved here. And this is when things get ugly, when people start arguing over power. And I think, in fact, you will find that most religious arguments or things that we take as theological arguments are, in fact, not about theology. They're about power, mm-hmm. about very, very worldly power. Mm-hmm. So um, what is uh, Abu Bakr is the, uh, the immediate successor, and, and he is called the caliph. Is that correct? Yes. Abu Bakr was, 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 uh, was made the first caliph. Now, caliph is, it comes from uh, khalifa in Arabic, which means successor. Mm-hmm. And in English, we, we, we make that caliph, C-A-L-I-P-H. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ali did eventually become caliph, but only he was the fourth caliph. Mm-hmm. So he is known in Sunni Islam as the fourth caliph and very, very much honored and respected in Sunni Islam as the fourth caliph. But in uh, Shia Islam, because they do not recognize the three caliphs that came before him, they don't even recognize the caliphate, and they call him the first imam, the first leader, leader with a capital L. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so his, his, Ali is a central figure here. In fact, the whole of the central portion of the book is about him. Mm-hmm. He's also, by the way, the, 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 um, the central figure, or a very, very central figure after Muhammad, of course, in uh, Sufi Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a man sort of, I think every Muslim will, will, will tell you how much regard they have for his... his uh, in Arabic, it comes out as nobility, but it's, 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 it's sort of grace and elegance and, and goodness of character and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the kind of interesting thing was, I was going to say um, is that through three, uh, really, I don't know if they're successionary struggles, uh, but through three passages of power, that is from Abu Bakr to um, Amar, Omar. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. and then uh, Athman, uh, he stands aside. Even though he people are looking decide. at him thinking, yes, he, he really should, uh, it's his turn. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's what I mean by this nobility of character. He said every time, he said, you know, I don't want to divide the community. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the source of division within the community. And division, fitna, which is a sort of very, a, a, a division with a lot of antipathy within the community, it's one of the nightmares of Islam. It's, it, 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 it's, it's uh, considered almost a, a kind of sin in itself. Um, there's a great emphasis on unity and on egalitarianism within Islam. Mm-hmm. And this is what uh, Ali was trying to uphold when he finally, and in fact the way he did finally come to power as the fourth caliph, is very, um, was as a result of, of assassination of the third caliph, Uthman, who sounds fairly corrupt. And even then it was challenged, and it was challenged by, of all people, the daughter <laughs> of the first caliph, Abu Bakr, Aisha, um, who led an army against him. Now, I know this goes entirely against everything we tend to think about, you know, Muslim women in the West, but in fact, a central figure here is Aisha, by then the youngest uh, widow of Muhammad, but absolutely central to the story. Now, you, you know, whether you like her or you don't like her, and she's outspoken, I mean, she's out there, and she's involved. She's, uh, whenever she can be, she's center stage, and she's truly the antithesis of our usual image of Muslim women. In fact, this army of 10,000 men she led against Ali, she is right there in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. She's in a, a howdah, an armored howdah on top of a red camel, and in fact, it's called the Battle of the Camel, and it took place, by the way, not at all, by the way, it took place, and this is essential, sorry, not in Arabia, but in Iraq, mm-hmm. just outside Basra, mm-hmm. in southern Iraq. And in this, in this battle, you know, there, I mean, I mean, there are wonderful accounts of her you know, hurtling, hurtling these blood-curdling cries to urge her men on to battle, and they're being falling all around her, being killed all around her, and so on. And of a howdah had the chainmail over it, being so studded with arrows that it looked like it was a porcupine. Um, finally, Ali gave the order to hobble the camel, to, to hamstring the camel, and uh, the camel collapsed, and then she went quiet. And he acted towards her in victory with this immense, again, this immense generosity and nobility. One could almost say, in fact, that Ali was too noble for his own good. 
um, forgave her, sent her back to Mecca with full honors, and so on and so on, never held a grudge against her. Um, and it was this, it was actually this kind of nobility that led to his assassination. And that's a fascinating story, because those who assassinated him were his own followers who had turned against him because they claimed that he was, that he was too accommodating, mm-hmm. that he was too, you know, he had given, he had given away too much. He had agreed to arbitration after a battle with uh, the man who would take over as caliph and found the Umayyad dynasty. Um, and they disagreed with this. They wanted to fight on to the death and so on. And they accused him, Ali, of not being Islamic enough. Mm-hmm. In other words, they were the first Islamic fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. They were called the Khawarizhi. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they said it, one of their battle cries was, a line from the Quran, judgment belongs to God alone. In other words, what they meant by that was that Ali had no right to make any judgment about uh, arbitration or about forgiveness and so on and so on. Only God could do that. Exactly what Ali could do was not quite clear in that case. But uh, when one of the Khariji assassinated him at the entrance to the mosque, in Najaf again, in Iraq, mm-hmm. just 25 miles south of uh, present-day Baghdad, what he shouted was, judgment belongs to God alone, Ali. Which is amazing because it is such a perfect picture to my mind of the radical extreme fundamentalist mindset claiming to act in the name of God. This assassin acted as though he were God. Mm-hmm. saying that judgment belongs to God alone, he acted as though he were God and carried out, you know, the last sentence and carried out judgment and carried it out, mm-hmm. um, which is very much what I would call the fundamentalist mindset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, to me, actually anti-God. You know, mm-hmm. you claim to act in the name of God means that you claim to act as though you were God, mm-hmm. which, you know, in religious terms, I would call heresy, but since I'm not religious, I'll just say that in uh, lay terms, it is the most outstanding arrogance, which, by the way, is something that the Quran constantly and consistently warns against. Mm-hmm. So I'm just fascinated by this, this, the use, this very, very early use of the Quran in such a distorted way, in the same way that I think all fundamentalists, Christian fundamentalists, Jewish fundamentalists, well as Islamic, Islamist fundamentalists, um, distort their own holy books uh, mm-hmm. and basically almost turn them on their heads, turn the whole message of them topsy-turvy, mm-hmm. upside down. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I've, I have lots of questions about this. One of the things that comes to mind is the kind of exegetical tradition in both Judaism and Christianity, that is that it, while um, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible are the revealed Truths they are open to interpretation, and there is an interpretive tradition. Is this true in Islam? I mean, is there a long exegetical oh, tradition? Yeah. Most definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, there is such a huge body of commentary on the Quran mm-hmm. alone, let alone the whole body of hadith of, of reports of Muhammad's uh, sayings and behavior and practice and so on. That uh, I, I, the, the Mishnah and the Talmud look like you know, a, a kind of brief by comparison. Um, I mean, I spent, I spent uh, last year, you know, as preparation for the book I'm now re- writing, I spent three months, uh, I actually thought it would take three weeks, which is an indication of <laughs> pure hubris on my part, but I spent three months reading the Quran as closely as I could. Mm-hmm. I was using four different translations, plus a transliteration, plus the original Arabic, plus, mm-hmm. of course, a dictionary, uh, since my Arabic is really almost totally gone. I mean, I can wield a dictionary but not much else by now. But it took me three months. Mm-hmm. And by the time I finished, I thought, you know, it's time to look at the commentaries. Mm-hmm. And I started looking at the commentaries and I thought, Leslie, you would need three lifetimes yeah. to go through these in the same kind of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, an immense body of work mm-hmm. of the, the, you know, hugely uh, varying quality, of course, but uh, just immense. And yes, there, there is... Um, an enormous amount of room for interpretation, not least because the Quran itself doesn't claim to be unambiguous. In fact, there is one mm-hmm. verse that makes it quite clear. It says some of these verses are clear and some of these verses 
are ambiguous. And then it goes on to say, well, the, the perverse at heart, we eagerly seek out the ambiguities, mm. trying to pin down meanings of their own to distort them for their own ends. Mm-hmm. Only God knows the true meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, only God knows the true meaning is another thing that um, <sighs> is very often forgotten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> by people who are convinced that they know the true meaning and only they. And mm-hmm. If you do not agree with their truth, then you are damnably wrong. Mm-hmm. I see. So mm-hmm. one of the things you say in the book, and I'm not terribly familiar with the Quran, to be honest with you, uh, is that it is strictly forbidden for Muslims, for followers of the Prophet, uh, to kill one another. Strictly forbidden. Um, but they found a way to get around this. Uh, and this too was uh, uh, it, it, it's <sighs> this this is what is meant by fitna, Muslims killing Muslims. It's a reference to civil war, and all throughout the story of what happened the first fifty years after Muhammad's death, Ali was assassinated just twenty five years later, and then the pivotal moment, the massacre in which Ali's son Hussein was killed, happened just twenty five years after that. In other words, Muhammad himself had not. Yet being dead 50 years, and you, this incredible risk sort of crystallized. Uh, and, you know, and the shock went round the Muslim world that the, first that the, 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 the son-in-law and first cousin of the Prophet had been assassinated, but then that the Prophet's grandson right, had been assassinated. It was, ah, ah, and in such a way, which you know, we'll get to in a moment. But the, um, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> yeah, the question was how um, they managed to get around. Uh, get the, yeah, it, the, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't getting around it. Okay. It was regarded as a tragedy from the very, very beginning. It was the one thing everybody most wanted to avoid, and it was the one thing they could not avoid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, how human is that? Yeah, how well, I, mean, my, is that? I guess my question is if they're strictly forbidden, uh, I, I think what you say in the book is, is that if, if there's, they are strictly forbidden to kill other um, Muslims, but uh, so they take the route of defining people or basically excommunicating people, but saying people are not acting in a Muslim way. Apostate. Yes, apostate. apostate yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, distorted or turned against the religion and therefore no longer real Muslims and so on. And again, if that's the you know, very fundamentalist mindset that determines who is in and who is out, the in-group versus the out-group. Um, and that's, you know, that you will find at the edges of every religion. Mm-hmm. This very loud and very ugly minority who will do this. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're the ones who, you know, I mean, for instance, the Battle of the Camel, you know, with uh, 10,000 men led by Ali, 10,000 men led by Aisha on her red camel, just outside Basra. That battle almost did not take place. They were negotiating in the middle of the field. You had these two armies ranged against each other. There was a tent set up between them. And Ali and Aisha's representatives were negotiating in the middle of the tent, in the middle of the field there, in the tent, and were very, very close to agreement to separate without battle, right? And then one tiny faction, and still nobody's quite sure who, one tiny faction, but half a dozen young hotheads began fighting, and boom. <laughs> it just spread. Mm-hmm. We had this enormous battle in which there were hundreds and hundreds of deaths. And there's a very, very moving account of Ali afterwards walking the battlefields, making sure that everyone is buried with full honors, both those who had fought with him and those who fought against him, and mm-hmm. praying for them and, 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 and berating himself for having been the cause of Muslims killing Muslims. Mm-hmm. It is considered the ultimate nightmare mm-hmm. in Islam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is why the vast majority of Muslims worldwide are so utterly against it, 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 all forms of uh, suicide bombing and terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, simply because it's wrong, because it is uh, clearly you know, forbidden in the Quran, but also they're killing Muslims. It's Muslims killing Muslims. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, but also killing, you know, taking any kind of, of innocent life. Mm-hmm. I see. So let, let's, move, let's move the story forward to, uh, I mean, in a way, Ali is the pivotal figure here, but I think in another way it is uh, his, I guess it's his son, Hussein. Tell us the story of Hussein and his, I guess, martyrdom from the point of view of the Shia. Yes. Uh, okay, Ali is killed. He's assassinated. 
and the first Umayyad Caliph takes over, which is headquarters in Damascus. Uh, also, by the way, a, a cousin of a more distant cousin of of Muhammad. And you, you know, you have to realize that it's you know to call it a, a family dispute is is kind of absurd because everybody was related one way or another to everybody mm-hmm. else in Mecca and in Medina at the time. You know, there's three or four different ways, in fact, to each other. You know, this was a fairly small community originally. Um, and it's, it's uh, um, the Umayyad Caliphate is seen by uh, uh, people in Iraq who had supported Ali uh, as uh, corrupt, as uh, autocratic, this is beginning to sound familiar, as as a dictatorship. And what they do is uh, Hussein has been persuaded after his father was killed to go back and live quietly in uh, in Mecca, in Medina, in fact. And what they did is in uh, Kufa, which is uh, present-day Najaf, they called on him. This call went out to him. Come travel from Arabia, come here, we will form an army under your leadership, and we will topple the dictator, and we will you know, establish a just and egalitarian, and etc. Right? Mm-hmm. Basically, a kind of, a kind of a prototype of, 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 of democracy. And Ali, and uh, Hussein did. And uh, there's many, many debates about what he knew and what he did not know, because he set out with just 72 warriors and his family, women and children, uh, across all of Arabia to Iraq. Uh, did he know what was happening? Did he really imagine that he could topple? I mean, by then the Umayyad, you know, dynasty was it was so powerful, had so many soldiers, and it was such a such an incredibly strong repressive regime. Uh, did he really imagine this was going to happen, or was, or was it more? And as you know, as I say, it's a debate about this. Or was he acting more like Christ? And I mean this literally because you can see in uh, posters, for instance, of Hussein, which are still which are sold in marketplaces and mosques all over Iraq and uh, Iran and Lebanon and Bahrain and wherever the large Shia populations. You will see posters of him in certain ways. He stands that. Uh, Westerners say, why is that poster of Jesus there? <laughs> he stands, the look, and so on and so on, and very, very Jesus-like. And in fact, um, so did he know that he was heading towards massacre? Was he willing to sacrifice himself knowing, you know, the, the, what a shock it would be for the grandson of uh, Muhammad, of the Prophet, to be killed in this way? Which, did he hope to shock the Muslim world, the empire, out of its corruption and so on, or was he just naive? And of course there's great debate about which of these two or anywhere in between it was. But in any case, travel he did. And despite all the warnings, and there were a lot of warnings of what he was heading towards, that the people in Iraq would not stand by him. You know, their hearts were in the right, they were in the right place, but their swords were not. Um, you know, and they would be you know, too cowed by the dictatorship. Um, but he ignored all the warnings, and what he said was, um, man travels in darkness, oh, I can't remember it now, man travels in darkness, and, well, it, 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 I don't remember the exact quote now, it's in the book, but uh, it, was to, it was to the effect that this was his destiny. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and when he got to Iraq, he wasn't even allowed near the town, he was intercepted, by the caliph's soldiers, and uh, after some to and froing, allowed to continue northwards along the Euphrates River, but not to go anywhere near the town itself. And uh, he went north and until they reached a place now called Kawabala, which means the place of, of grief and, 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 and disappointment. Uh, and at that point was just, it's now a huge city, with the shrine of Hussein, of course, at the center. But at that time, it was just a stony stretch of desert. Mm-hmm. And that's where you know, the women and children exhausted and so on, he set up camp. And that is where he was surrounded, 72 warriors by 10,000 warriors. No, sorry, 4,000. 
4,000 warriors sent by the caliphs. And what happened then was a siege. Basically, they were cut off from the water of the river. So the intent was to, um, to drive them to submission by thirst, right? to withhold any kind of access to water from them instead of having to actually fight them. Mm-hmm. And, in, and it took 10 days. And in those 10 days, there were all kinds of stories of, you know, the, there were various encounters of uh, one-on-one private uh, 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 um, duels, basically, you know, between, you know, uh, uh, members of um, Ali's family and the surrounding army. And you get stories of great bravery of, of, of warriors like Abbas, his, his uh, uh, Hussein's uh, stepbrother, trying to get to the river to bring water for the children and being ambushed on the way back. You get um, stories of, of, of Hussein coming out from the tents and pleading for water, at least for the children, holding up his, his infant son in his arms, and in reply, all he gets is an arrow in the neck of the son, and that's one of the images, of course, as he holds up his son that's most taken for an image of Christ holding up a, an infant child. And then in the, at the very end, on the last day, and this all happened during Muharram, the month of Muharram. There is the final battle, and Hussein himself is killed. Uh, the heads of he and his warriors are cut off. The women and children are taken captive and paraded in uh, Damascus with the, the, the caliphs, and the, the, the heads rolled in front of him, and so on and so on. It was just degradation of the utmost degree. And as I say, shock went round the whole of the empire at this. Not great enough shock, <laughs> because it took some time for the Umayyad uh, uh, dynasty to fall. And on the other hand, it can be said that the man who was the first Umayyad caliph, Muawiyah, it's a wonderful name, Muawiyah, very, very sort of, almost a picture of the perfect Byzantine politician, very, very savvy, very crafty, very... Um, uh, skilled, let's say, in the exercise of power. Um, in a way, it could be said, and this is what the claim, of course, is that he saved the Muslim empire, that without him, it would have fallen into complete discord and, 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 and mm-hmm. factionalized and would never have achieved the power that it did. Um, and this is also an excellent argument. But, you know, what I try and do when I'm telling the story is to tell, you know, to have respect for the story itself, to tell the story, to let the reader decide, make up his or her mind about, you know, what is right or what is wrong here, to make the judgment as a consequence of which I've had um, emails and letters from uh, some Sunni Muslims saying that I'm horribly and wrongly biased towards the Shia, uh, which are balanced by almost the same amount of comments and letters <laughs> from Sunni Muslims, from Shia Muslims, saying that I'm biased and <laughs> towards mm-hmm. the Sunni side of things, which makes me think, of course, that somehow or other I have managed to do what I was trying to do all along, which mm-hmm. is to um, not take sides and just let the story tell itself. Mm-hmm. It's an immense, powerful story, which, by the way, you know, is not merely history in the way that we think of history in the West. You see, in the Middle East, what happened 1,400 years ago is as alive and as real and as vivid in people's minds as if it happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. There is not that idea of history as then. It's always now as well as then. Mm -hmm. This fascinates me, this, this bridging of now and then, which is something I've tried to do, you know, in, in all my work in the last several years since I've been working in this area, as it were, both Mary and Jezebel, and then after the Prophet, and then with the book I'm working on now, I'm going to be trying to do it again, is to bridge that awful gap which makes us in the West look at events in the past as though we're looking to the wrong end of a telescope. Mm-hmm. And they all become smaller, right? And we simplify things immensely and have no respect for their complexity or for the sheer human messiness of them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we don't have much respect for either complexity or human messiness about what's happening right now. I mean, just, look <laughs> at all the, just look at all the nonsense being spouted about, you know, the, the Egypt and Bahrain and what happens if, you know, the Shia take over and Iran's going to expand its sphere of influence or some Muslim Brotherhood, which is Sunni, is going to... 
expanded sphere of influence and so on and so on. All these are perfect nonsense and totally exaggerated. Right? And it's really not about Shia and Sunni what's happening now. It's about uh, exactly the things that uh, President Obama spoke about in Cairo 20 months ago, which is democracy, freedom, and dignity. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, let's leave all that punditry aside for the moment. And where was I? Well, <laughs> you, well one of the things you were saying is, is that the, the past is very much alive for these people. And I, I ask, I kind of, we're about to run out of time, but I want to ask a question about that. The, uh, um, I don't know how to best put it, but I, one, of the, uh, one of the ways in which you reach an accommodation with someone with whom you've had trouble is forgetting about the past, is putting it aside. Is the fact that, uh, does the fact that these people do, uh, hold the past to be very present, is that, does that hinder that, uh, that possibility? I don't think so. You know, we think of the Shia Sunni split as indelible, but here's the thing about it. It has not been pure conflict for 1,400 years. In fact, for most of those 1,400 years, Shia and Sunni have lived side by side in perfect tolerance. Maybe not perfect harmony, but certainly intolerant. Coexistence, in other words. But it can always be used. It can always be, the story that I tell in After the Prophet can always be manipulated politically. Ayatollah Khomeini manipulated it for his ends in the 1979-1980 revolution in Iran. He used images from it, images of Hussein at Karbala, for instance, in order to get people riled up. Mm-hmm. The... Um, Images of it come again and again. For instance, the Shah of Iran was called Yazid, who was the, who was the, the, the caliph who ordered the massacre at Karbala. Uh, George Bush was called Yazid when he uh, invaded Iraq. Um, these are images that come up again and again. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about what's happening now, I think, is that they are not coming up. Not in Bahrain, which is 70% Shia, under, so far, still, uh, Sunni rule. Um, the, uh, this isn't, you know, this isn't theological what's happening now. It really is about, I mean, you know, what we have now is the stunning sight of, 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 of people willing to die for, um, and being killed yeah, yeah. for the right to self-determination, to democracy, and feeling very empowered in this demand of democracy. And yet we look at it and we say, Ooh, but are they ready for democracy? I mean, what an absurd question. Yeah. And in fact, there was a wonderful article by Nick Christoph, a column by Nick Christoph in, uh, in uh, the New York Times of um, uh, February 27th about exactly that, just exploding that whole mess. Mm-hmm. You mean someone's willing to die for democracy and you're saying that they're not ready for it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Give me a break. Yeah, <laughs> so let, let me ask a, a question that I think will occur to a lot of people who listen to this show and, and uh, I, I think particularly people in the United States. Um, and that is, people will sometimes uh, try to make an analogy between uh, the Sunnis and the Shia and Protestants and Catholics within Christianity. But I mean, everything you've said to me said that they're really not very analogous at all. No, 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 they're not. I mean, I was trying to think to myself. Sorry to go on for a second, but you know, I was trying to think to myself if if, if a uh, you know if a Protestant at least no, that wasn't in Northern Ireland, let's put it that way, if a Protestant that was not in Northern Ireland tried to think back about a, a, a Catholic atrocity against Protestants, I don't know where they would go. The St. Yeah. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, that occurred in the 16th century. Nobody yeah. remembers that. I mean, nobody who's not a historian. So there's, the, the past the, really, that parallel, past really is yeah. gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the parallel is there, though, when it comes to political manipulation. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, this, this uh, identity as you know, whether your Shia or your Sunni identity takes priority mm-hmm. is partly a matter of, 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 you know, political events, of current events, and this, of course, can always be manipulated. Yeah, no, I suspect, I suspect, that's I suspect what you're right. That's what's happening, you know, yeah. uh, in Iraq and in Iran. It's what we're not seeing happening now. In fact, we're seeing a very, very determined effort not to let that happen, for instance, right. in Bahrain, which I utterly admire. Well, yeah, me too. So anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time, and this is fascinating. I could go on forever about this, primarily because I don't know anything about it. I I confess my ignorance. I'm a little bit ashamed. Um, We've been talking to Leslie Hazelton about her book, After the Prophet. Leslie, we usually end this show uh, with a traditional final question, and it is this. What are you working on now? Well, it'll probably come as no surprise after what I've been saying. But what I'm writing now is a new biography of Muhammad in which my basic question is who was he? I want to get a real 
feel for him as a man, for who he was, for what it was, as it were, to be Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when, when were you going to expect that? Well, I'm hoping to finish writing it by the end of the year, oh, which would mean publication in fall of next year, but wish me luck. Well, I, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, I do wish you luck. And, and I thank, thank you very you. much for writing the book and taking the time uh, to talk to us. Again, we've been talking to Leslie Hazelton about her book, After the Prophet, the epic story of the Shia-Sunni split. Leslie, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Leslie Hazelton about her new book, After the Prophet, the epic story of the Shia-Sunni split. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>